Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome in. It's another edition of the Doyle and Derek podcast. Here with the Indy Star. I'm your host, Derek Schultz, but the star of the show, as always, and I know that you missed him with his week off, is our good buddy and award-winning columnist, Greg Doyle. What's up, man? What week off? Worst vacation ever. <laughs> you have, you must have the worst timing ever. It feels like every time you try to sneak a break, which I get, it was during the Colts bye week, right? I mean, if you're going to take a break, that's the time to take a break. But, you know, the Pacers hire a coach and it just feels like a bunch of stuff always breaks like right when you're at least trying to just even take like a 72 or 96 hour breather. And then when I'm home, when I'm actually working and there's just nothing happening, like, please, Pacers, hire somebody. I, I can see the vacation <laughs> coming like like an asteroid. I'll be off next week. I'll be off next week. I'll be off. I haven't sent Pritchard a text message at one point saying, just, so you know, I'm off coming up soon. Could you make your hire? And. I think I got an LOL back. Like, no, Pritch, I, I'm not kidding. I, I mean that. Make yeah. the hire now, please. Do me a solid here for once. <laughs> yeah, instead do of, me a yeah, solid. Ruining this for me. Uh, we will talk about the Pacers' new head coach, which, by the way, feels like it happened two months ago. Right. Um, but also, you know, we have we have yet to talk about the last time we talked to you guys was following a really poor performance for the Colts, particularly the offense and Phillip Rivers against Cleveland. And then kind of the complete opposite happens the next week where – well, they dug themselves a 21 donut hole in the first quarter, but then they came out and really dominated the last three and then going into the bye week, probably feeling pretty good about themselves as they head into a um, not an easy game by any means. I, I don't think Detroit is bad. I, I think Detroit is one of those teams that is kind of floating along somewhere in the mediocre middle in the 2020 NFL season. Um, and we'll talk about that game as well. But you know, your response to, to, to Philip Rivers, I think, really answering the call, right, Greg? I mean, we, we trashed him. Everybody trashed him. The national guys were trashing him, said he should be benched. And he comes out with a performance like that, which I think was exactly what the Colts were hoping he still had in his gas tank. I think they found something, and we'll see if they go to it early and often, but I, I think they should. Um, he went in the hurry up, you know, the no huddle and the tempo. And and, and granted, maybe, maybe down 21 nothing. Uh, the Colts were facing a Bengals defense in prevent. I, 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 should, I don't know. But um, I know it didn't one prevent the whole damn game, but he stayed in up-tempo the whole game and really found a rhythm there. And Rivers is a – I mean, he's a savant. He's a, he, he does stuff by feel. You know, he's he wings it. He throws passes up for grabs sometimes, but he does it all by feel. And I think a guy that goes by feel – and he did this in San Diego. This is, I'm not, this is not revisionist history or not like rewriting who he was. This is who he's always been. He's always been a guy that goes in the no huddle. I think Reich and Sirianni were saying last week when they were asked about the no huddle that, yeah, he, he would go, or maybe Rivers was saying that he would go no huddle like entire seasons in San Diego. Well, I, I think that works for best for him. Let's do, let's do that some more. And I, I really think it was the, the microcosm of the trade-off that you have with Rivers instead of Brissett. You have to put up with mistakes. I mean, no doubt Philip Rivers has the propensity to make a big mistake. We even saw it in the fourth quarter of that game with, with the interception, which was kind of a, a heat check throw for him. But 
the trade-off is is that you actually do have the ability to have explosive plays and make the opposing defense respect that. Chunk plays, as Frank Wright calls them. And that was something, Greg, that they were completely incapable of doing last year. They just they couldn't do it. They just they couldn't get explosive 20 plus yard plays. They couldn't create that. And I think you saw it against Cincinnati. And and look, the, the Bengals aren't a great team. Nobody's saying that they are. Their defense actually is competent. That's not a bad Cincinnati defense that that he ended up dunking all over for the final three quarters of that game. But just to have that ability to be vertical and open up the passing game with Marcus Johnson and Zach Paschal and and hopefully at some point T.Y. Hilton. Uh, it, it leads to so many good things happening for the offense. And you just can't limit yourself in a league. And you're seeing it this year, Greg, in a league where teams roll out of bed and score 30 points every game, you have to have the ability to be explosive on offense. Yeah. And it's remarkable. You mentioned T.Y. Hilton, um, that, that he's had some rivers has had a couple big games this year, 300 plus, whatever. And, and T.Y. has not done anything. And, uh, mm-hmm. and at some point you have to wonder, is he just not going to do anything? You know, is this, how much of a sample size do we need to see before we say that, wow, he, he hit the wall? And, and I'm not saying he has. I'm not saying we've seen it. But it's fair to wonder, at, at what point do we say, we're not waiting for T.Y. to break out anymore. He is now what he is, and, and what he is is, uh, well, I want, he's not even been sure-handed. He had another drop against the Bengals. I, I forget what it looked like. I just remember that he had one. Um, it's just really strange. I, I feel like there's more there. I, I don't think he's hit the wall as hard as it looks like he's hit it. Uh, I don't think he's vintage T.Y., but I don't think he's turned 90 overnight. I, I keep waiting for something in between. Yeah, and there are some signs that he's about to break out. Like, I, I do think that he's lost a little bit of a step, and his elite speed was a big part of his effectiveness. But one thing that T.Y. has going for him, as opposed to somebody that's just all about speed, he's an unbelievable route runner. So I still think that, at the very least, he can be useful that way. And, yeah, he's had a couple of drops, but he's normally a sure-handed guy. I, I, I think a lot of – and I've been the biggest Hilton defender in the world. You know that, Greg, for years. <laughs> I think the biggest problem with him – I just think it's been bad luck this year because a lot of the plays where it looked like he could make a big play or he could get a free release, he's being held or being interfered with because the guy's drawing flags like nobody else. So I'm I'm still hopeful that there's more there for T.Y., but I, I think the days of him being like a 1,400-yard receiver are, are probably behind him. Well, we, we've talked for years, and we've unfortunately for T.Y., we've had to, about how tough he is. And it's sadly for him, it's almost never been a shoulder or a finger. It's always been an ankle or a leg or something. And you can only have so many of these, you know, nagging but semi-serious I don't want to downplay what he's gone through. Semi-serious ankle and whatever injuries he's had. You can only have so many of those when you're a speed guy and not lose a half step. And in the NFL, the difference between elite and average is a half step. And I'm not saying he's lost it, but I'm saying if 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 that's what we're seeing, that would really make sense that at a, a relatively early age, I mean, not terribly early, but he's a, he's a couple years away from where I thought he would kind of hit a wall. And if he's hit it, I think his injury history would explain that. It's so stupid that, and this is what we always do as media guys to talk about must wins. I mean, we're not even in November yet, even though I believe technically is is it November first that's going to be the Lions game? Is that is Sunday, November first? I think that's right, right? Halloween Saturday. So technically, this next game for the Colts is November, so it'll be the first one that month. Um, to throw around the term must win, right? But when you look at still what faces the Colts for the rest of next month, Tennessee twice. Um, I think they have a game against Green Bay in there, and there's. I feel like there's somebody that I'm missing that's also really good. Um, Pittsburgh. Baltimore. Steelers. Baltimore before Pittsburgh, though, right? Oh, I, right. The Steelers, I think, are December. Okay. So I think it's Baltimore. I think I think it's two against Tennessee, Baltimore, and then Green Bay uh, coming up in November. Would you, 
maybe not must win, but really be in trouble if you lose this kind of game against Detroit? No, no, must win. Uh, and it's not a must win because they, the Colts need to see themselves in second place or whatever on Monday. It's not must win for what's going to happen this week. It's must win because at the end of the year, they're going to be probably – you know, need you know one game in or out. They're gonna. I mean, that's how close it is, and that's and they're gonna be behind the Titans, right? They're they're going for a wild card. They're not beating the Titans. They're not catching the Titans. I just don't. I mean, it, they appear to be legit, but even if they do catch the Titans, whatever. How many times does a team get in the playoffs comfortably, comfortably by two games? Not not this team. So if this if this team gets in, they're gonna get in by a game or by a tiebreaker, which means you can't you can't lose the game. Like I mean, you've got to win this game because you're gonna need it in about nine weeks when they count up all the wins. Yeah, that's what kind of really strikes me, not just about the AFC, but in the NFL in general, how good the good teams are. Like, Kansas City is really good. Uh, Tennessee, it looks like, is really good. Pittsburgh is really good. The entire NFC West, seemingly, is really good. You know what I mean? And and the bad teams are really bad. Look, Jacksonville's bad. At, at this point, I was trying to give Houston the benefit of the doubt because Watson's so good. That team stinks. Their defense. You know I mean, who would have thought their defense would be such a disaster? Yeah. And JJ Watts completely fell off a cliff to, to yeah. what we expected, even you know, two or three years ago. So um, you know, the Colts are kind of in this murky middle where you've got teams like Cleveland and Chicago, and and you're not really sure. I think who the Colts are, but you, you've got to take care of business against the the lower rung teams. And while I don't think Detroit is terrible, you know, clearly it's a lower rung team. It's not going to be a playoff team, barring something unforeseen here. Why do you keep saying you don't think Detroit's terrible? I I mean, at some point, it's kind of like, uh, well, you look at a team's record, and, and, and that says a story, and, and you are what the record says you are, but you are what the record says you are at the end of the year. Detroit's terrible, and their coach is still Matt Patricia. Okay, <laughs> He's still their coach. They're terrible. Yeah. Detroit, Detroit is the baby that you, if you're the Colts, you've got to take the candy. They're a baby, and you take their candy, and you don't apologize for it. Stafford's good. I've always been a Stafford guy, and they've played a ton of close games. Now, they've won some of those. They got very fortunate to play Atlanta, and everybody knows that all you have to do against Atlanta is survive for four quarters, and the Falcons are going to find a way to blow it because they always do. But, you know, you look at the rest of it. They lost to the Bears by four. They got blown out by the Packers at Lambeau, um, barely lost to the Saints. They beat a good Cardinals team. I mean, I'm a, Greg, to me, in today's NFL – Terrible is the Jets. Terrible You're right. is the Giants. Terrible right. is the entire NFC East. Like, I, I think Detroit is not good. Don't get me wrong. But I think they're competent at the very least. I'll um, give you that. In a, I'll in, give you competent. In a way, I, I think they're a better version of Cincinnati, who I, I really don't view as a terrible team, even though obviously the record would indicate that they're not a good football team. Yeah, well, Cincinnati and the Colts, you know, they got them at, at the right time. Because Burrow's just going to get better. I mean, you saw the numbers yeah. he put up against the Browns, especially early in that game. He's just, you know, rookie quarterbacks, you get them early. If they're really good, you know, it's like talking about the candy from a baby. You play these guys when they're babies because when Joe Burrow grows up, he's going to be a monster. We usually spend a really healthy chunk of time on the Colts, but since they are, in fact, coming off a of bye week and we don't have a game to recap, I'm really happy with the timing of the college football and Big Ten season opening. Because I think there's a lot to talk about, particularly with Indiana, but also with Purdue. I thought getting a really important win against Iowa that kind of set the tone, I think, for their season. But let's start with that IU win, uh, Greg, because, you know, last year was the biggest year in Indiana football in a quarter century. But what was lacking last year was a signature win, right? They, they kind of beat all the teams they were supposed to beat, and they lost all the teams that they were supposed to lose to. And then finally... They get in this close game with Penn State, and IU fans are thinking, okay, well, 
where's the other shoe going to drop? Because Indiana always finds a way to lose. And that somehow they find not only they find a way to win thanks to a, uh, a Penn state crucial brain fart, but also that call at the end, which has gone against Indiana a million times out of a million actually goes in their favor. So I, I just thought it was great for the program and God, what a win for Tom Allen as well. Not that he needed further validation, but you know, you talk about a guy that proved a lot of people, including me wrong. Yeah, that that one call. N- never mind the win. Um, I mean, the win's huge. But and I and I'm happy. I, I did this on purpose. I when, when they went for it on you know went for the two point conversion. They're gonna win or lose right there. I tweeted out. I love this call because I wanted to. I wanted to. Just, I wanted to be out there. So even if they because I knew I was writing about it and I knew that if if this if this call doesn't work, hold me accountable to loving this call because I love him going for it. And I wasn't sure he had that in him, you know. But he obviously did. Um, but, you know, IU has lost so many weird games and hard, hard fought, tough. I mean, they've lost so many different ways, um, games like this. If they they were due the break that they got, including Penn State missing that field goal by one one foot, you know, two yeah. feet, whatever. You know, that they missed that by two feet. I mean, IU won by inches on both sides of the field. And with James Franklin making the call. And, I'm, I mean, IU deserved it. They, they, they deserved to win, but Penn State deserved to lose. I mean, the, in other words, the right team won. The right team won that game. Yeah, Franklin, uh, and and that's kind of been his M.O. where, you know, we talk about Indiana making a lot of late game mistakes. Penn State in those big games has made a lot of mistakes, and that's just an unforgivable one. But also unforgivable was it, and this got lost because Indiana won the game, Greg. What the hell were they doing with that kickoff? Did they try to squib it, (laughs) and then it just went to midfield? I mean, I I couldn't believe you gave Penn State the ball at midfield with a timeout, and a couple of chances to even attempt that field goal, I think, is is malpractice for Indiana. Yeah, that was a just a mishit squib. It wasn't an onside kick. Oh. It was. It was just. I mean, it was the right play call. You call for a squib kick. You don't. You don't. You don't hit a long runner that they really can't return very well, and the game's over, or at least overtime. Um, that he tried to hit a squib and just kind of mishit it. It happens. So that was not a Tom Allen coaching mistake. That was just a kid did the squib and. Obviously, they practice that, but you don't you don't practice the squib as much. I'm surprised we don't see that more often, frankly. Every time I watch an onside kick or a squib and it's perfect, I always think to myself, why are they perfect every time? I mean, that that's not easy. It's like a pro golfer. They're great with a seven iron in their hands, but every now and then they're in the woods and they got to hit a low punch. And that's not something they practice all the time, and yet they're always pretty damn good at it. Pat McAfee must have practiced it because that dude had it down to an art. Um, not necessarily squib kicks, but his onside kicks were – you know, nine times out of ten were perfect. Um, he, he, had he had a genius leg. He had a genius leg. Peyton, we, in in this city, we've seen Peyton arming with that Peyton Manning with that genius arm and brain. Uh, Pat McAfee had a genius right leg. But what struck me about that win, getting back to IU, Greg, is you know Michael Penix made a play when they needed him to make a play. And Indiana, for so long, IU football has not had guys. Yeah, they've had, you know, Antoine randall and Kellen Lewis and James Hardy. Like, every couple of years, they've had one guy who could maybe be, maybe do that. But now, you've got Michael Penix who can do that. You've got Watt Fillier who can do that. You've got Taiwan Mullen who can do that. You know what I mean? Like, that that's what really strikes me about where Indiana football is right now. For so long, they had guys that were happy to get an offer from IU because if they didn't go to IU, they'd have to go to Akron. You know what I mean? And now... <laughs> right. You have legitimate Big Ten football players and, and guys that would play and start anywhere. You know, the, a lot of those guys that I just listed could play for anybody in the country. 
Yeah, Penix and Penix started the game bad. I mean, he was he was not good. And last year he set a school record at almost seventy percent accuracy, which is remarkable. Um, and he started the game off something like twelve for twenty-seven, something like that. And and he was missing guys badly, and he had yeah. touchdown passes. He was missing. I mean, he was it was not misleading. He was not good. Uh, but then he hit. I think he hit his last seven. Um, I mean, when it was time to win the game, that guy won the game. And 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 you know the the two point conversion gets all the attention, and I get that. But the two point conversion he scored earlier in the game uh, when you know they scored a touchdown, and he I think he snuck for a touchdown and yeah, ran for second left. Yeah, yeah, and that one. I mean, he had almost no chance. That that you know, Philip Rivers, bless his heart, gets sacked on that play because the, the the house came on him. And he made a guy or two miss and then just burst in the end zone. That was a special player making a handful of special plays, not just and the touchdown to Watt Villier was okay. Yeah. I mean, that was an NFL throw. I'm not calling him an NFL quarterback. He'll definitely get a shot somewhere. He'll he'll be in some camps for sure. But that was an NFL throw, that touchdown. Did you think that he scored the the two point conversion to win it? Um, no, but I think that whatever whatever the call was going to be on the field, you know, it's so crucial. The call on the field is so crucial because if replays are inconclusive, the call stands. And it's, you know, plays like – because I was thinking in my head, you know, um, maybe on certain, some plays they almost shouldn't even call it and just let the replay do it. But, I mean, obviously that's impossible. But furthermore, th- that replay was so inconclusive that you needed a call on the field just so you know which one was going to stand because it was – I do think – I mean, it looked like to me – the ball short hopped the pylon. Does that make sense? It looked like the ball touched the turf. Oh, there, there's no question that the ball hit the ground before the pylon. I think the question was, does, did the very tip of the nose of it cross the plane before it hit the ground? Because on that one angle, it looked like the very nose of the football broke the plane before it hit the ground. So it, it definitely didn't uh, hit the pylon first. Oh, hell, I didn't even. Yeah. I've never even looked at the the tip of the nose. I didn't even I didn't realize that was a thing. I mean, I didn't think you could be closer to the end zone than the pylon. I, really, I didn't think you could cross the tip of the. You know, I didn't realize that was impossible. So maybe he did. Maybe, maybe then it was in. All I know is it short hopped the pylon, <laughs> but the call in the field yeah. stands. And uh, thank God the call. I was thinking the first in real time. And I'm sure a lot of people thought this. The the way the ball squirted through the end zone so fast, I was afraid the replay was going to show that the ball came out of his hand. Like in because we've seen that before. Yeah. Guys reaching for the pylon, yeah. you're sweaty, late in the game, you're tired, and the ball squirts out like a bar of soap. And in replay, you can see, oh crap, you just lost the ball. But he didn't. He he obviously has. I mean, quarterbacks always work on their hand strength, and that is a reason why. In real time, when he started running, I thought to myself, this has no chance. <laughs> so the fact that he even got that close and then scored, I you know I, I thought he and I thought in real time that he, he was short, but I thought. You know when you really frame and and that's the whole thing, Greg. And I think we got away from that. You know we've had replay for. 20 something years now what we got away from was replay was put in place to correct blatant errors and and things that were obvious and i think so often when you fast when you go frame by frame and you really stare at it you can see your mind can see whatever it wants to see right and i just thought it was the classic example of whatever the call in the field was should have stood because there just wasn't enough there to overturn it and i think a lot of times officials overturn stuff when it's way too close. And that was the definition of a really, you know, you could, you could talk me into either, but I, I did think personally trying to take some bias out of it. Cause I did want to see Indiana win the game. I thought personally that it looked like the nose of the football had broken the plane before it hit the ground. You know, there's, there's no, there's no black and white rule that would apply here, but in general, and, and you see this on Twitter, a lot of people making this comment in general, when a replay takes more than about a minute, then it's not, it's not going to be conclusive. If you've got to look that hard 
then that to, to your point, replay was put in there so the New Orleans Saints don't get that you know pass interference call against them and whatever. Um, replay was put in to correct obvious mistakes. And if, if it takes a minute or two and you're parsing split, you know, then never mind. I mean, the call in the field stands. What do you think this means for Indiana season? Because now you get the Penn State win and, and you get the breakthrough out of the way, but it's so tough because, of course, their crossover game is Wisconsin, right? Of, of all the teams you can draw in the West, you draw Wisconsin. And then yeah, but who's their quarterback? State of Michigan. When is the Wisconsin well, it, game? That uh, It's a couple of weeks from now. Um, I think it's week week five, maybe. Because their quarterbacks are both out for 21 days. So, And I don't know if that, whoever the quarterback is at that point can come back if, it's, if, the, if the game's in midseason or earlier. Uh, actually, it's, it's week seven. It's the second to last week. Okay, so then probably a quarterback. The the yeah, yeah, one of the guys will be back. But. It's the last game before the bucket game. Okay. Um, they've got this game at, at, at Rucker, which could be tough. But, <laughs> I mean, Michigan State's gone in the tank, but um, that's, a, that's a big win for that program. <laughs> it is. They didn't earn the S. I mean, Michigan State plays with a block S on their helmet. Doesn't Rutger get the S off their helmet? In all seriousness, I better pray that Rucker doesn't win this game, or else you know, <laughs> people that listen to this podcast are going to give me hell for it, for sure. Listen, that, a couple things I want to say about coaching. Um, one is I don't like Greg Schiano. I think he's a bad guy. And, and, and bad guy comes in different shapes and forms. I don't mean he's a criminal, but I think he's a bad guy. And, uh, I mean, he ran, when he was at Rutgers the first time, he would run up the score against, like, historically black colleges. I'm not calling them racist. I'm just, but Norfolk State, I think. is. I mean, they're like 1AA or whatever they are, and he ran up the score on them. Like, went for two, up 40, something, onside kick, something. Um, when he was at Tampa Bay, everybody hated him, and there's a reason everybody hated him. He's a bad guy. He's a bad guy, so I, I don't want him to succeed. Certainly not against IU. Um, and then about Tom Allen, about coaching. You know, the the Penn State game really crystallized for me. I, I'd never, I'd never thought about this. That if you're talking about how good is a college football coach, you know, is he good? Um, it's, I mean, it can be as simple as yes or no. I mean, Dabo Swinney is good, yes. Um, but in some guys, and James Franklin is the reason I thought this, but I also it carried over to Tom Allen. There are th- at least three, but I'm going to boil it down to three parts of coaching that are all different. One part's recruiting. Or recruiting has no, like Ed Orgeron is a great recruiter, and he had Joe Burrow. I'm not sure he's a great coach, but recruiting. Tom Allen's a great recruiter. He can do that. Part two is, do your players look prepared on the field? And that goes into development. And I don't mean just if you're a freshman or do you get better every year as a senior or you're really good. I, that's part of it, yeah. But I mean, bottom line, does your team look smart on the field. That's part two. And IU has that. Penn State did not. Penn State did not look smart. And part three is for those three hours on Saturday, do you make the right choices or do you make the wrong choices? And James Franklin makes the wrong choices all the time. I think Franklin's a great recruiter with a whole lot of wind in his sails. And I don't think he's a very good coach anywhere else. Tom Allen's a great recruiter. His team looked better coached on the field Saturday than Penn State did. And I still think maybe he has a little bit of work to do game management. Yeah, me too. I, I think in game, um, he's still probably around like a C level, uh, but the recruiting has been a plus. And you, you know what? I'll actually add a fourth one to yours. Greg. Um, will your players walk through barefoot, broken glass yes. for you? True. And yes. undoubtedly, Indiana's entire roster would do that for Tom Allen. They would lay down in traffic for their head coach. And you and need I, to have that that level of buy-in and dedication and loyalty to you, I think. And I wonder about Kevin Wilson. No, I don't wonder. I, I don't wonder at all. Um, <laughs> I, what I wonder is, because, you know, you don't want to, I don't want to undercut, say they didn't give their all. But you're right. When, when you love a coach, you, you give your all all the time for your own sake. But when you love a coach, you find something extra you didn't even know you had. 
And that's what the great coaches get. They get something extra the player didn't even know he had. I don't think Kevin Wilson got that. I think there's a reason why IU could never break through under Kevin Wilson. They didn't get that from him. And the reason is, and we know why he was fired. He was fired because he treated the players poorly. And I don't, you know, Shiano at Rutger, I, I don't know, you know, I'm 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 not there, but I'm sure they don't like him. If I can't stand but, him from a thousand miles away, I'm sure they don't like him. So I bet they don't get that either. But to give, I'll give Kevin Wilson this, and you may disagree with me here. And and I, I heard some things about what went on in India. I also heard some other things about you know, hey, this was blown out of proportion. So I, I don't know if we really, if we're ever going to really know the full story of what happened with Kevin Wilson. But I, I, you have to give him this: Indiana stopped becoming a nationwide punchline. Because of Kevin Wilson. You're right that they never had their breakthrough. They didn't. But they started getting, you know, getting back to the pinstripe bowl, just getting bowl eligible from where they were. Indiana was, they were not only the worst team in the Big Ten, Greg, they were the worst program in the country for years and years and years and years. And I think Wilson deserves some credit for finally getting that ball rolling in the facilities and, and, and you know, pushing Fred Glass to make this a big boy program, which it, it desperately needed because it, it needed everybody. It couldn't just be the coach. It needed the entire administration to be on board. So I, I know that his departure left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths. And maybe Kevin Wilson wasn't the best guy in the world. But I do think on the field he deserves a little bit of credit for at least getting Indiana to baby step number one. Now Tom Allen has taken them to step two and step three and, and hopefully even farther. I'll give you that. And I'll and I'll give you that. And and. I want to clarify something. I did not mean to imply, and I probably did. I don't mean to imply that he's a bad guy at the Greg Schiano level. Uh, not the, Greg Schiano is one of my least favorite guys in coaching. Kevin Wilson's not that. He just he got fired for reasons that were off the field and blah 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 blah. Anyway, you're right about Kevin Wilson. Did lifted him up to at least mediocrity, a step above that, which is a huge. I mean, you can't get great without being mediocre first. Um, but he's no Schiano. I want to make that clear. I don't think the big boosters in Jersey care because the only time Rutgers has been relevant is when shiano has been there. So I think they're willing to sell their souls for that. Oh, there's, there's no question. Oh, and, and you've listen. seen that happen with programs before. Yeah. You see it everywhere and you see, and you see coaches and or, or fan bases forgive and, or overlook what was happening in their, in their place because it's our team. Therefore mm-hmm. everybody's wrong. We're going to circle the wagons, and the whole world sees it one way, but they're all seeing it wrong. We see it correct. It's amazing, and that that story repeats itself everywhere. You know, given enough time, it'll happen at IU, it'll happen at Purdue, it'll happen at Ball State, it'll happen at Butler someday with a basketball coach. I mean, it happens everywhere that fan bases rally around their guy as they should. To the point, though, that when the, when their guy, whoever he is or she is, crosses the line, they don't see it. And uh, anyway, you're right. We forgive winners. I mean, we see that in politics. If, if someone can win, we'll keep rooting for them just because we like winning. I got to get your reaction to this. Uh, I was having a conversation uh, after the game with a Purdue buddy of mine uh, after their win against Iowa. And he goes, you know, this is great because they won without their, their head coach and they won without their best player. And I go to my buddy, um, are we sure that Purdue just won that game without their best player? Oh, right. Great point. No, no offense to Ron, and I, Rondell Moore is special and explosive, and he's like no one I've ever seen, certainly for an Indiana team. You know, maybe I mentioned Randall L. earlier. Rocket Ishmael. Rocket Ishmael. Yeah, right? Every time he touches the ball, he has a chance to score. But that said, I mean, David Bell is one game into his sophomore year, and he's been the Big Ten Offensive Player of the Week five times. Wow. So almost half of the games that David Bell has played, he's been the conferences. He's unbelievable, Greg. 
Yeah, and and he's doing it with a different quarterback every week almost, and he's doing it. And and these guys, Aiden O'Connell, that they've proven they can play, but he's not doing it with you know Drew Brees. I mean, he's mm-hmm. and I I didn't think. Um, and granted, I by the time I saw David Bell in high school several times, his ankle was a problem. I didn't know that he had top end speed, and he doesn't have top end speed. I mean, he's not four three, but I didn't know if he was fast enough to be this good. I mean, I knew he was going to be good. And I think he's going to be a pro, but I didn't know if he was fast enough to be this good. But so what's interesting to me, and and we're not going to see it because I think Moore is going to come out for this year's draft and Bell can't come out until next year. I wonder who gets drafted higher. I mean, I guess year to year we'll see. But if they were in the exact same draft and a team needs a receiver and Moore and Bell are on the board, I mean, what a great choice. I mean, you really can't can't go wrong. But I do think Bell um, will be the better pro. And, and might be the better college player, and that's no insult to Rondell Moore. Those guys are both All-American. I mean, they're both All-American type receivers. They're that good. And they've barely played together because yeah, of Moore's yeah. injury last year and the timing of that. So I can't wait to see both of those guys um, will we? out there on the field. Will we? I mean, I think so. Yeah, I, I think we will at some point. Um, what is it the would scuttlebutt? Be very, very Purdue, wouldn't it, to um, – not have you know these two generational players once in every 15 20 year type playmakers the stars align for them both to be on the roster at the same time but not be healthy at the same time well what's the scuttlebutt on rondale what i mean they've and and you know privacy i get all that um but do we have any i mean you, you talk to your purdue friends and and i don't sniff around for stuff like this i i just blurted out on a podcast but what do we know what rondale Moore is dealing with you know i haven't because sorry to interrupt you as well. Yeah, I haven't really followed it as well. I, I think it's there's a little bit of a cloud around the whole thing. Like, okay, wait, he opted out, but he yes. opted back in. But right. you know, it, it, does that mean he's just going to play when he feels like it? Or you know, and Purdue hasn't been very upfront about what the injury situation is, or or really what the entire situation is. So I, I'm thinking that yes, we are going to see Rondell Moore um, very soon. But, you know, part of me is not closing the door on the fact that perhaps, you know, maybe anything's possible, Greg. When it comes to Purdue sports, that's what I've learned from being out here. You know, anything we talk about things waiting for the other shoe to drop. Anything is possible when it comes to that. How about, though, they they won with their coach at home? And and, and I'm sure Jeff Brom, you know, during the week had had a big hand and stuff. But still, on, on Saturday, you're going on the field, you're playing Iowa. And you're looking across the field. And there's Kirk Ferentz, and you're your sideline, and Jeff Brom's not there. And Brian Brom's going to be a head coach. We all we've all known that. I mean, we I think we've known that since he was a player at Louisville, but he's not the head coach. And you're what is taught. This goes to your 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 program's culture. You either can or cannot overcome. Never mind lost Rondell Moore, which is no good at all. But you either can or cannot overcome the fact that your head coach is, has COVID. He's home, and and Purdue football. You talked about IU being a national joke until Wilson got there, and Purdue wasn't far behind. The idea that Purdue football could be the team to overcome losing an All-American receiver, their head coach at home, and they beat a program like Iowa that never wins yeah. national championships but is always legitimate, That's that speaks to your program and the steps you've made. Yeah, and it was a game that they had to have because it was the, uh, a 50-50 game where, first off, it was an opener, so you hadn't started 1-0 under and bronze re- regime at all. So you wanted to start off on the right foot, but you look at the rest of the schedule, Greg, and, and it's real manageable for Purdue. Like the only game that you look at and you say, okay, they're going to be at a talent 
this advantage is probably I got and I got to check to see when they play Wisconsin, honestly, because you mentioned the quarterback situation, which is a great point. But, you know, the rest of the West, those are all teams that are either the Wisconsin game is actually week three. So maybe maybe they won't see that. But all these other programs, you know, like Minnesota and and teams like that, all those teams are at or below or slightly below Purdue's level. Um, So I think it's a real winnable slate for them, whereas Indiana, unfortunately, it's in the east. um, There are a lot more pitfalls. Mike Carmen of the Lafayette, uh, you know, journal has a great story today, um, speculating, just kind of amusing. Could we see IU Purdue two weeks in a row? You know, the bucket game, and then what comes next? Can you and, imagine? I mean, that's the kind of thing you're you're allowed to write <laughs> this week. Yeah, I don't oh, yeah. know how many chances you get to write that story. And three weeks from now, it might be a joke. Or three weeks from now, we might be barreling down on it, and he was first. But that's just a fun. That's just fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, a chance Purdue could put together something like a six and two season. Um, I, I really do. Wisconsin, I just ne- I never expect any team from this state to beat Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> Wisconsin, Wisconsin basically has taken the state of Indiana and stuffed it in a trash can for the 21st century on the football field. I mean, they've dominated Indiana and they they killed Purdue as well. Yeah, kind Not of in basketball Purdue. too, right? Yeah, well, much more so in basketball with IU than with Purdue, but right. um, because Painter actually had some success at Cole Center, which um, was really hard, especially in Bo Ryan's heyday, to have a lot of success there. Um, we mentioned the Pacers head coach and and Nate Bjorkren, and uh, a guy that you really really like. And if you love paying your dues and climbing every rung of the ladder like my dad loves, um, you're going to love this guy, aren't you? Yeah, well. I love his story, but and I wrote the day he got hired, the day I came off my vacation to write this astounding take, which is we have no idea if he can coach. We have no idea. Now, like when the when the Colts hired Chris Ballard, um, he talked an amazing game. I mean, the, his by that I mean his introductory press conference. And we all know now Ballard's just great with words, and he's very good at his job. But he was said to be the best GM candidate. I mean, Ursay said he's the best GM candidate to come along in twenty years. I mean, he was a known commodity. Someone was going to hire him, and the Colts got him. He talked a great game, but you had a feeling like he's going to be good. Um, Bjorkren didn't talk a great game to us. I mean, I wasn't on that conference, that Zoom, but he talked a great game to Pritchard. He talked his way into the job. Pritchard made it very clear that he brought in a handful of finalists, and of those handfuls, Bjorkren was the best guy in the room talking about basketball and X's and O's and, and all that stuff. Um, so, But we don't know if he can coach. He, he's not a guy – that you look at and say, he'll be a great head coach someday. He's he's not, you know, Chris Ballard four years ago in, in Kansas City. So I don't know if he can coach. We're all going to find that out together. But he has a very Hoosier story about him, you know, the, the movie Hoosiers. He's He was a guy that grew up with a basketball goal in his driveway in Iowa, um, but literally, you know, was driving the school bus to get a job and, and, and leaving jobs and showing up places with no job, just trying to get one and went to work for Nick Nurse, who coached him in college, assistant coach, went to work for Nick Nurse for free, left a high school job where he was the state coach of the year in Arizona, left it to work for free as a volunteer in the in the G League just because he wanted to get his foot in that door. I mean, that is a guy that – that is a very underdog kind of story, and now he has worked his way to the top. And, you know, the Peter Principle says that you eventually reach a level where you're just no good anymore. And I think a lot of people would argue that I've reached my level here at the star. That I'm, the Peter Principle, I'm embodying it. Who the heck knows? But – We'll see if he can coach, but he's got a great story that you can get behind for sure. Yeah, and, and the Pacers really had two, you know, what is it? Let's make a deal, uh, door door one or door two. They really had two doors to walk through. It was either go through door number one that they just went through and hire somebody who's been around forever. And, you know, there's nothing wrong. Nate McMillan was fine as a head coach. 
And they could have done that with Dave Yeager or somebody like that who had a, you know, head coaching stints elsewhere. Or door number two was the hotshot assistant and try to find the next Frank Vogel, Eric Spolstra, um, Nick Nurse, you know, any of these guys that, that just kind of worked their way up. You know, Vogel and Spolstra's case, I'm not as sure about Nick Nurse and if he was in the video room or not, but I know for sure that Spolstra and, and, uh, and Vogel were and try to mold those guys, uh, that guy into the next big thing. So, you know, at the end of the day, and you and I talked about this, Greg, um, in the NBA more than anywhere else, talent trumps everything. So it's nice to have a nice head coach and, and a competent head coach. I'm not saying that that's not an advantage, but really at the end of the day, if, if you don't put five good players on the floor, you're screwed. It doesn't matter who your coach is. Um, but I, I'm intrigued by this because I love his story too. And I think this was the right move for the Pacers. It, they played it safe so often that I, I kind of wanted to see them put themselves out there for somebody like this. Yeah, exactly. They they could have hired, I think Chauncey Billups probably would have been safer. I mean, I think, even though he's never coached, but he played in the NBA. Anyway, he, he's probably safer. We know D'Antoni's safer. We don't know what his ceiling is, but you're right. They could have gone safer. Um, this is not safe. This guy could be terrible, but but he could be, I mean, he you don't know until you find out. Like Steve Spurrier, someone, of course, Spurrier had a, was a great football player, but Someone gave him a chance at Duke, and he made Duke from a laughing stock to a really good team. And so you just never know what you're plucking. Now, what you talked about talent is so true. Nurse won a championship in Toronto, but he had Kyle Lowry and and uh, Kawhi Leonard. You know, and, and Spolstra, we love Spolstra, and I think he's a great coach. But that roster is nasty. Jimmy Butler and, and and Duncan Robinson hitting threes, and and I'm leaving out about oh Bam Adebayo is one of the best 15 players in the league. I mean, you've got to have a great roster to make a lot of noise. And the Pacers have a they have a good roster. They have a good roster. It's not great. And there's there's reasons it's not gonna be great because they can't get some guys that other cities can get. But anyway, they need a great coach and a good roster, and they might have both. We'll find out. Before we wrap up, uh, two other things that I wanted to get to um on kind of a more serious note, but um I I'm kind of associated, I think, forever with uh, Jay Query, who was my co-host on the radio for eight and a half years, and we recently uh, brought back the show on a TV, you know, kind of a weekly basis on ISC Sports Network, and we're, we're hoping like this to turn it into a podcast and be able to distribute on there. But on Thursday, while while you were away, um, I got a, a message from actually his mom on Facebook, which was random to get a message from <laughs> Jake's mom, she teaches at the preschool where my son is. So usually if I get any messages, it's about my three-year-old. <laughs> but that uh, that Jake had a massive heart attack and that he was going to be fine. So it's weird to see that, Greg, out of the blue. You know, you see massive heart attack and it triggers something in your brain. But then, oh, but he's going to be fine. Um, you know, really a, a scary and sudden situation. But um, Dana, your colleague at the Star, wrote a, a really nice piece about it where she talked to, to Jake's longtime girlfriend, Shannon. And um, it's been cool, you know, from the outside looking in, because it's Jake's story. It's not mine. But, you know, just to see the response from from people, you don't want to have, you know, almost die. But Jake had mentioned when we got laid off, it's a lot like going to your own funeral. So I kind of joked to him. I was like, hey, you've, you've had twice this year where you've gone to your own funeral, <laughs> once in January and, and once, you know, last week. Yeah, how lucky are you, Jake, to get that experience twice? But, um, you know, it takes it, it does take things like getting laid off or near-death experience or, or worse, sometimes for, for the rest of the world to understand what a person's all about. Because, you know, you see Jake on, on your show or you hear him on the radio more likely, and you, you, you think you know a guy that way, and you really don't. Um, and, I, and I love that his story, and whether it's on social media, it's, it's come out, or in Dana's story a little bit, it came out, that he – 
he's all about uplifting this city. You know, Jake, Jake is all about, I mean, he's all about putting Indianapolis on his, on his shoulders and helping, helping it reach greatness. And granted, he's not gonna do it by himself, but we can all try a little bit. And he's, he was trying to raise money for, I think for somewhere. Yeah. In Children's Bureau. yeah Cause he had, he had a fundraiser going on for children's bureau. Right. And, uh, and he told me, I saw him yesterday cause we taped the show and he said, Hey, the, Best thing ever was me almost dying for that fundraiser because usually, you know, I'm asking for support and all of that. And, you know, you get $50 here, or $20 there, five bucks there. And now something like this happens and everybody, you know, feels sorry for you. So they just they start throwing in the donations. I think he raised something like 16 or 17 grand the last time that I checked. And to so, do that from almost literally your deathbed, not not quite because he obviously yeah. didn't die, but but he had what they call a widowmaker. And a heart attack called Widowmaker is called Widowmaker for a reason. The reason is you're not supposed to survive. So from his damn near his deathbed, he's raising money. So I just, I, we, as a city, we're, we're fortunate. You as a friend, I know, but as a city, we're fortunate to have him around. Yeah, I totally agree. And he's, he's unique. I'm not saying that I always agree or get along with Jake, but um, I can't picture the city without Jake Quarry in it. That's for sure. Uh, Hey, and real real quick update. I mean, how he did your show. Yeah, he's fine. I mean, they're, they're not expecting, they're expecting to make a full recovery. I mean, obviously he's now has daily meds that he has to take basically for the rest of his life. Cause, um, cause for those that don't know, Jake runs like five miles a day. He's, he's like you, Greg, he's a very health conscious person, but his dad who is fit as a fiddle at 80 years old has survived four heart attacks. So it's, it's just a genetic thing. You know, sometimes you draw the short straw, you know, there are people that weigh 300 pounds that eat, you know, two pounds of bacon and smoke a pack of cigarettes every day that live until they're 85. Sometimes it's just, you either have it or you don't. Yeah. And, uh, it, that reminds me of a story I wrote and Dana put that in her story about how Jake kind of knew this day might be coming just because genetics says it would Howard Kelman, the voice of the Indianapolis Indians, similar thing. His, his and I forget the details. I wrote it three years ago, maybe. I was there the day he came back. I was there, b- bizarre. I was there to write about Austin Meadows. He was the Indians, you know, top young prospect. And so I'm going to go write about Austin Meadows because he'll be a pro, he'll be in a big leaguer someday. So I went to talk to Meadows. He was so boring. He was so bland. He was so, I, I, I got, listen, I've been interviewing people my whole life. I'm, I'm, I'm not bad at it. I couldn't get anything out of him. Nothing. I go to the press <laughs> box, mortified, like, I've got nothing. Oh my God, what am I going to, I've wasted a day here. And Howard Kelman starts talking on the on the PA, and it turns out that he had missed four or five days because he had a heart attack. Anyway, long story short, he had a similar history, doing everything he could to avoid the heart attack that he thought was coming. And he remember the heart attack came. He remembers that as it came, he thought to himself, it's almost like the Atlantis Morissette song, ironic. Like, isn't this ironic? I've, I've counted my calories. I've done this. I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. And I, my right arm's starting to hurt, and I know what that means. I'll be damned. So it, genetics... The, the the war of nature versus nurture when you're raising kids or whatever else nature's undefeated man it just is yeah and and luck and timing too in howard's case you have a full medical team downstairs right victory field right that could have happened at his home in carmel and it would have been touch and go and same for jake jake was supposed to get on a plane and fly out for the indycar finale to saint pete the next day so oh. god forbid that would have happened on the airplane or something like that you know he'd be dead i mean the doctor literally told him if you came in 20 minutes later we we wouldn't have been able to save you so, um, you know, it's insane. It's, it's hard to even comprehend, really, <laughs> that you can come that close. Um, last thing, because I think it ties in well to your latest column, which you just released about um, the NBA activism and, and President Trump. And, you know, we have the election coming up. Have you had the chance to vote yet or are you going to go on Election Day? I voted by I voted by mail. I did absentee okay. ballot because I didn't know where I'd be and what would happen. So, yeah, I've already voted. And, and oddly, 
somebody on Twitter that I that follows me that I've interacted with a few times sent me a DM uh, saying, "Hey, I just you know I'm I'm a volunteer and we got your ballot." Like, I, and I, on the one hand, I'm comforted, like, good, you got my ballot. Yeah. It's just kind of weird. So that, so you know who I voted for, I guess, and you know exactly that I, I, and, and I'll say it, I, I went split ticket. I did not go straight one way or the other. I went one party for president, one party for for governor, and uh, the other party for governor, and and I. So there you go. Yeah, because we were gonna um, we were gonna try to go. Our place is St. Luke's up on the north side on 86th Street, but. You know, if it's going to be six or seven hours, the point of early voting is to avoid the long lines. I'm trying to think. I'm thinking to myself, with more polling places open, maybe election day is the better play. You know, some days. Obviously, I'm going to go. I'm not going to skip it. I, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to give you bad advice or give anybody else bad advice. But I, I, this feels like to me like if you're going to the Indy 500 or if you're going to a Colts game, sometimes the smart play is to show up right before the thing starts yeah. uh, because because <laughs> everybody else got there early. And yeah. the tra- there's a traffic jam at Lucas Oil Stadium at 11:30. So don't be there at 11:30. Be there at 12:55, and you'll get in. And I kind of wonder if it's the same thing with voting. I wonder if, if this election on Tuesday is the, will be the, the smallest lines because everybody's gotten it out of the way already. I, I don't want to tell anybody to put it off and wait and have it be a nine-hour wait, but I kind of wonder if that's how it's going to be. It's just sad to me. Like we should we should do everything that we can to make sure it's the most precious right that we have as Americans to vote. And this whole thing of um, nope, if if the if the mail isn't postmarked by you know three days before then we're not going to count the ballots or you know you should count everyone um everyone and and should make it as easy as possible and well but okay yeah but but you can't say something black and white like that because what if the what if it's the election's really really close i mean literally 50 votes apart i mean that's impossible but what if it is and what if 75 votes trickle in in december i mean at some point you got you have to you have to have a cutoff and i'm not saying that what they're saying is right but you have to have a cutoff because what you can't do is declare one guy a winner, and then in January you find a, a ballot box was just got discovered, and the other guy wins. So it, you got to cut it off somewhere. It, if it's postmarked by, I think election day, then you should yeah. count it. Uh, I'll give you, that. you know, we 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 have until January twentieth technically, right, before we have to swear somebody in or or I guess continue somebody's term, whichever the result ends up being. But you know, to me, the the lines and all of that. Um, you know, the fact that we have five polling places in Marion County, whereas I think Hamilton County has eight or something like that. You know, it's yeah. it's ridiculous to me with the amount of people you could throw. You could throw a rock in Carmel and hit a polling place right now, whereas in, in Marion County, you really have to go and seek it out. I just I just hope it's a blowout. You know, I mean, and I voted for my guy, so I hope my guy wins the blowout. But I, it needs to be a blowout for our country's sake. It needs to be a blowout in either direction. This one can't be. Because of all the things going into it, and 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 the the, the COVID and the, the votes by mail and this and that, and the Supreme Court being changed, this one just can't be close. And have both sides declaring victory, and and the divide in our country gets worse because no one even accepts the the result. So someone needs to win by a whole lot. And I you know I hope that someone's my guy, but whoever it is, it needs to be. It, it can't be close. Yeah, I think last four years ago, it was the most polarizing two people that we had running, where you either loved or you hated Hillary Clinton, you either loved or you hated Trump. And now I think it's the um, the most polarizing with the two bases, you know, where, uh, you know, Democrats or, or people that lean that way are sick of how things are and Republicans are dug in uh, with the way things are and loyal. And, you know, you've got the, the two passions kind of fighting against one another. So I, honestly, Greg, I'm just looking forward to getting it over with. No and kidding. I, I, think I, I speak for a lot of people when I say that, like, I'm, I'm just ready to move on to whatever the next phase is going to be and, and hopefully it's it's the proper phase and we start taking some steps forward because there are a lot of things that 
obviously need to change about this country. I want to say one last um, thing. I know we got to wrap it up. One last thing is, yeah. you're right. Four years ago, the story was two candidates, two polarizing candidates. Four years later, the story is two Americas. There's two Americas. And which one do you believe in? And that's where we are right now. Check out Greg's latest work, IndieStar.com. Like, subscribe. Also, you can follow the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, everywhere else where the master of all trades, Clark Wade, ends up putting that up. He's the best. Time, Greg. Yeah, Derek. <laughs> we will see you, you next week, buddy. Hey, Jake, I don't know if you're listening or whatever, but someone will tell you, I love you. I'm so happy you're okay. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll pass that along to him just in case because he doesn't support anything that I do. <laughs> like this, <so. laughs> I still love <laughs> I'll have to let him know personally. Okay. See you later, buddy. All right, bye. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.